Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gifts that you have bestowed upon us, for the blessings that you continue to pour out. I ask that you would be with us this morning, that you would open our hearts to receive your word and your wisdom. I ask that in everything that we do, we would honor and glorify your name. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. All right. It's good participation already. Um, as I said earlier, my name is Michelle McKeska, and I am stepping in for Mike this morning. He texted me about a month ago asking if I would preach, and, um, and I said yes. And then he immediately responded with, you know, it's been a while um, since I have preached. And I said, yes, there has been a reason. Uh, this was not the first time he has asked. It's just the first time I've said yes in a while. Um, and I have a really, really great reason for it. And that has been that I have been a high school Bible teacher for the past five years. So I know that we have some teachers and maybe former teachers <clears throat> in the room. And uh, it's approaching the end of the summer, which means that every teacher now, there's much weeping and gnashing of teeth. And um, actually, I'm looking out and seeing that not many of our teachers are here, which means that they know, right? It's like summer is ending. It's like the winter is coming for teachers. Like it's, it's happening. This is going to end. Um, and I just, I just didn't have the extra brain space to give um, to do any sermon, any kind of justice while I was teaching. And so um, a little bit about me. I, I will not be returning to teach next year. Zach and I are starting the adoption process, which is very exciting. Yeah. Um, in fact, we literally just turned in our application uh, on Friday. So things are rolling. And um, so because of that, I have a little bit more time. I am not um, with my fellow teachers. I'm not getting the emails about professional development right now. It's great. Um, so I was like, yeah, I'll preach. And um, he said, okay, do you want Sermon on the Mount, standalone? And I said, easy. I want Sermon on the Mount, and I want the Lord's Prayer, which is where we're going to be this morning. Um, and of course, what would any sermon be without a little bit of neuroscience? So we're going to begin by talking about the brain, because you're stuck with me this morning, and, and I find that really interesting. Um, so I was reading in preparation for this a little bit about prayer, and um, I was a little bit of a late bloomer in terms of liking science. So I hated it when I was in school. It was no fault of my teachers. I just thought it was the most boring thing in the world. Um, but now I look back at it, and I'm often surprised at how often science and faith kind of intersect, uh, particularly in regards to prayer. So there's a book written by Andrew Newberg, who is a neuroscientist, titled How God Changes Your Brain. So he states in this book that if a neuroscientist were to scan your brain as you talk about someone you love, the activity levels happening in your brain would reveal a lot. Um, it would most likely show elevated activity in parts of your brain responsible for affection and compassion, which makes sense. Even if this person is not in the room, the brain still stimulates these feelings because the brain has created a neurological network, a neuro model for this person. And what's interesting about this neuro network is that it can either grow and strengthen or it can actually weaken. 
the way that it is most um, easily grown is through shared experiences that are so associated with the feelings part of your brain. So not thinking about the person, but being with the person. So what does this have to do with prayer? Well, uh, they, neuroscientists have also scanned the brains of people of faith, and they've noticed that their brains are different from other people's brains. So it tells us that, not surprisingly, people of faith have a God neural network. This network, like any other, can strengthen and it can also weaken. So several studies have been done and researchers have noted that it's prayer that strengthens this neural network. It creates increased activity in the frontal lobe, which is responsible for attention and focus. They've also found that those who pray regularly have thicker gray matter in the prefrontal cortex. I'm going to throw out a lot of parts of the brain, sorry. Um, this is essentially your brain's CEO. It's responsible for your willpower. Um, it also increases activity in the anterior cingulate cortex. This is the part of your brain that's responsible for compassion and empathy. So praying makes you a more focused, compassionate, and empathetic person. Pretty interesting. It also creates increased activity in the language centers of the brain, particularly in Christians because of our emphasis on spoken prayer. And it also reduces responsiveness in your amygdala. Now, the amygdala is interesting. You guys might know a little bit about that part of the brain. That is your fight or flight. So if somebody punches you in the face, it's your amygdala that is going to be responsible for whether you're going to punch that person back or you're going to run away, right? So our, or if you're in traffic and someone cuts you off, that's that amygdala, right? Uh, interestingly, during puberty, that thing increases like a lot, and your prefrontal cortex shrinks down a third of its size. So... It's not our fault. It's our brain. Um, so again, right, praying makes you a less fearful and a less angry person. It reduces the activity of the amygdala. They've also found that regular prayer and meditation is literally one of the best things you can do for your brain next to reading and exercise. See, that's why I don't exercise. So I'm just, I can just pray and it works out, right? It lowers your blood pressure eases stress, helps with emotional healing. It's even been found to help the body cope with disease. So according to researchers, it's not enough to simply think about this God or believe that he exists. In order to create and strengthen this God network, it requires regular prayer and meditation. They've even found people that self-identify as atheists. They report feeling close to God after consistently praying for six weeks. So the lesson from neuroscience is that if you want to know God or feel close to him, prayer is the way to do it. One of my favorite theologians always said this. He said that if someone would come to him and ask him questions about God or what Christianity was about, he would recommend that they pray. And this always seemed odd to me, or at least insensitive to where that person was. Couldn't you at least meet them where they are, answer some of their basic questions? But again... The neuroscientists back them up. So, now that we've heard from our science friends, we're now going to hear from Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Matthew chapter 6. We are going to be in verse 9. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a black card back in the seat in front of you um, if you want to follow along. And as you're turning there, I just want to review 
what Mike talked about last week, some key points about prayer. Um, the Lord's Prayer, which is our text this morning, is meant to kind of serve as a contrast to what Jesus has talked about in the previous text. So just to review, um, he talked about religious hypocrites and Gentiles' prayers. And essentially what he said is that your prayer doesn't need to be a performance. It doesn't need to be an act. It doesn't even need to be long or eloquent. Prayer is not a sermon. It's not evangelism. It's not a way to impress others. And we've all been there, right? Uh, Many anxieties even about praying out loud tap into this fear because we're worrying about what others will think of our prayer, right? We know that this judgment occurs, and it shouldn't. Prayer should always address God directly. It's not about God. We're speaking to him. So with these instructions for what to avoid, Jesus now gives his disciples an actual prayer to pray. Um, And in verse 9, he says this, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It's a lot of trespasses. Okay, so a couple of things to note from this prayer. Um, It's interesting, in the first service, we say the Lord's Prayer every week. And so um, one of the things that you would immediately note if you were in the first service is that there is a part of the prayer missing if you're used to reciting this prayer. Um, the, typically how it is recited is it ends with, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's not in the text. So the reason for this is that it was a later church edition. It wasn't in the original. The church kind of just added it. Um, there are a couple reasons why they did. Um, it is most likely drawn from an Old Testament passage, 1 Chronicles 29, 11. David is actually speaking to the assemblies of Israel. He's passing the torch. He is about to die, and so he's letting everybody know, my son's taking over, he's going to build the temple, everything's going to be good. And as he's doing that, uh, he says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. So that's probably where they drew the text from. Um, And again, the church was very aware that it was an addition, but it fits. It fits with the rest of the prayer, and so they've just continued to pray it. The second thing um, that I want you to note about this prayer in particular is that it is broken up into two parts, or two basic sections. The first is it's all about addressing or petitioning God. These are what um, scholars will call your statements. So if you're a big underliner, um, I'll draw your attention to those as we go. And then the second half of the prayer is we or us statements, prayers and petitions about each other. So again, um, we see that there is a structure to this prayer. Um, And Jesus has given the disciples a structure. The final thing that I want to observe here is that when the disciples ask how to pray, he doesn't give them a theory. He gives them an actual prayer to read. Uh, This might strike us as odd today, right? If someone were to ask me how to pray, that's probably where I'd start. I'd give them a theory. I'd give them recommendations. Maybe I'd give them a formula. Um, But our society is a bit more individualistic. 
What I mean by that is we're more concerned about what works for you, right? And this is just not the society that Jesus grew up in. This was a communal society, and it was a very common practice for a rabbi to create a prayer, and then his disciples would in fact be known by the prayer that they prayed. It's like, oh, those are Jesus' disciples because they pray his prayer. Those are John the Baptist's disciples. They pray his prayer. Um, So Jesus gives them a prayer, and I think this really can serve as the linchpin um, for the Sermon on the Mount. So let's dive into the first few statements. So the first petition or request states, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So again, if you're an underliner, I would recommend underlining the word our. This is going to give us a really significant clue here. Um, The first is, this is meant to be said together. It's not my father, it's our father. Um, The other reason why the plural is used is because it's indicating that this special relationship that Jesus has with the father, he is now sharing. He's giving us access to this fatherly relationship. This is the height of what prayer is about. It is being able to access the divine love between the Father and the Son. This is now something we can experience. Um, He is also our Father who is in heaven. So again, what he's trying to do here is to make sure that we don't confuse or misinform what a relationship with our heavenly Father is like by comparing it to our earthly fatherly relationships. He is the one who sets the standard of what that relationship is. And I know especially, right, when all of us think of fathers, it's not always necessarily a positive thing, right, depending on our own personal relationship. But we are here to see that it's our Father in heaven. It's our heavenly Father that we're addressing. And the second half of the petition, it moves from what we know, so we acknowledge he's our Father in heaven, to now what we want the world to know. Hallowed be your name. So hallowed is just a fancy word that means sacred or holy or set apart. We want your name or your reputation or your character to be made holy and sacred throughout the world. This also comes with an implication. If we're petitioning, if we're requesting, if we're asking for that to happen, we're assuming, right, that it's not happening around the world. That God's name, that God's character is not understood, is not rightly understood throughout the world. There are a lot of false gods out there that parade around claiming to be the Christian God that seem to look a lot more like Zeus throwing um, some lightning bolts, right? So there's a lot of misinformation. So this first petition is that his true nature, his true character would be known throughout the world. Okay, So that's the first petition. The second one, the second your petition, states your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the kingdom of God is a really common term, and it was very common for the first century in Israel. But it primarily means the rule or the reign of God. Um, So another way to say it uh, would be your government come, your policies be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, So a way to think about the kingdom would be to ask this question. What would the world look like if God was in charge? How would it be different? How would it be differently expressed? What areas of injustice would be addressed and dealt with? 
Um, so one of the radical claims of Christianity itself is that God indeed is in charge, even though it doesn't look like it. Um, through Jesus' death and resurrection, he has accomplished the ultimate victory. Mike has um, before talked about an example of using World War II. So the battle, the ultimate battle, was D-Day. That was the turning point of the war. Now, there were still skirmishes, there were still battles, right? The enemy did not just give up after that. It wasn't finally formalized until VE Day, right? When the treaties were signed and everything was done. So again, with the kingdom, the cross is the ultimate battle, right? It is the ultimate victory. However, there are still some areas where the enemy is fighting back. The enemy hasn't given up. So I've actually spoken on prayer before at um, our previous women's retreat, and I mentioned the Lord's Prayer in that uh, sermon as well. And I think that one of the reasons why Christians pray today uh, is because, particularly in this petition, we see that prayer is the best weapon for the advancement of the kingdom. Um, It's also a great reminder that ultimately it's God who brings the kingdom, not us. We're petitioning for God to bring his kingdom. Now, we get to partner in it, right? We get to participate, but it's ultimately God who is bringing this mission. And again, the kingdom that we're wanting to bring is going to advance through love and prayer. This is very different from the kingdoms of the world, right? Whoever has the most bombs, that's the powerful empire. This is not the way of the kingdom, right? It advances through love And what we'll see with later, it advances through forgiveness. So we're going to move now to the we petitions. Um, If you're still underlining, um, the next petition reads, give us this day our daily bread. So if you want to underline us, um, anytime you see your or us, this will help you divide it. So give us this day our daily bread. Simply put, this petition is about God supplying our daily needs. It doesn't say give us this day our daily chocolate right? That would be really nice if that were in the prayer, Um, but that's not what it's talking about, and it's not even talking about bread. Uh, The reason they use the term bread is that this is actually referencing an Old Testament story, which is when Israel was wandering in the wilderness. If you guys are familiar with the story at all, God provided their daily needs by providing manna or bread from heaven. It also came with really strict instructions. He said, you can't hoard it. You can't save it. You have to trust me that I'm going to provide you food the next day. And as usual, some people didn't trust and some people hoarded away. And then it was like eaten up by moths uh, or worms. I can't remember. Um, But the, the whole point of the exercise is trust, right? So this part of the petition is all about our trust in God for our daily needs. Now, we live in a pretty um, wealthy society. We, most of us in this room, um, are not wondering where our next meal is going to come from, right? So this petition itself should create a couple of responses within us. The first one is gratitude. Give us a stay or daily bread, and thank you for doing that, right? Immediately we have gratitude. Um, the second response is, while we have our daily bread, we know that others do not. So immediately you're thinking about others in need, and how can I help? Um, again, the plural is used, right? Give us 
this day our daily bread. So it's not just talking about my needs. It's talking about the needs of the world. Um, the third thing that this statement should invoke uh, would be to seek forgiveness. If I ever play a part of any kind of economic injustice, right? If there's a reason why I have so much and others have so little, forgive me if I have played a part in that, which is going to lead us into our next petition in verse 12, which states, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So a couple of things to note here. Again, if you're familiar with the Lord's Prayer, you might notice that some people say trespasses and some people say debtors. Uh, There's a very long and complicated answer to why that is the case, but I'm going to give you the short version. Um, Essentially, both debtors and trespasses were common symbols um, to discuss sin. So it was very common to talk about debt as a moral debt. I owe God something. Likewise, it was also common to talk about trespassing. I have violated God's rights somehow. But again, they're both symbols and metaphors for sin. So whichever one you use, both are great. And even in the commentary on 14 and 15, he changes from debtors to trespasses. Um, So again, the language, don't get too hung up on that. Um, I think one of the most interesting things to note about this petition in particular is that he knows we're going to need to ask for forgiveness. In the prayer that he gives, he gives, and you're going to mess this up, right? So be sure to ask for forgiveness, and also, as we have also forgiven others. There's no exception clause there. There's no if, and, or buts. It's, I'm assuming that you're going to be forgiving because you also are needing forgiveness. Um, So in the commentary that I read earlier, um, it seems to put a conditional clause here. Um, It seems actually pretty harsh. It says, if you forgive others, then your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive their trespasses, neither will the Father forgive you. So a lot of um, controversy and conversation have happened about this commentary, but I think the best explanation that I've heard um, is that forgiven people forgive others. It's not that it's a conditional statement. I think what Jesus is getting at here is that if you can't forgive others, then perhaps you have misunderstood the very essence of the gospel, right? Which is that Jesus has died for us, that the father of the entire universe has given us grace and love unconditionally. There are absolutely no conditions, right? Um, It says, even while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. So Jesus, I think here, is laying out the structure or the logic of the kingdom. If you understand and you fully grasp what you have been given, it is going to create a natural outpouring of forgiveness and grace and unconditional love. And I think, as is true with everything, probably the hardest thing to do is to actually forgive ourselves, to actually realize that we have been forgiven. And I think a lot of... um, thought and reflection can benefit us, and that is what can help us forgive other people. 
So again, Jesus teaches that kingdom people are those who exhibit radical forgiveness. It's at the center of the gospel and the center of the mission. Now, forgiveness is also a reminder that this world is still full of injustice. Someone is going to offend you, just like you're going to offend someone else. So you need to be just as ready to extend forgiveness as to receive it. And this will take us to our final petition. Uh, That again, just to restate, says, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So temptation here can be translated as either trial or testing. Uh, Most scholars would say here that God is not leading you actually into temptation. We have a whole list of other verses that seem to indicate that that is impossible. God is not the one who's tempting you, right? Um, There will be times of trial and testing, but he's not going to actually purposely try to tempt you. That's coming from evil or the evil one. Um, A really helpful scripture verse with that is 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Which is, again, very, very comforting to read. So the petition here realizes that there will be trials that we will encounter tests and hardships, but that we can also ask to be delivered. This is our petition. We need to be delivered either from evil. um, Another translation could be the evil one, meaning Satan. Either way, we're not seeking deliverance from God, as if he is the one that is tempting us, but we're receiving deliverance from sin, evil, and Satan during temptation or trial. Uh, So this last petition actually reminds me of a story that I've read uh, about a couple of missionaries who were living in South America. And one day they came home to their their hut, their dwelling, and they walk inside and there is a boa constrictor in their house. It has gotten in somehow. Um, So they immediately book it out of there. They are terrified. Uh, And so they send word for uh, a man in the village who is essentially the guy that takes care of snakes. Like, he's known as the snake killer. Um, Which, if that is your reputation, can I just say, like, I want you as my friend. I, there's, I am not a country nature person. You can ask Burgundy. I've had her kill so many things. Creepy crawlies for me. Um, So if you are known as snake killer, we're going to be friends. Um, But he's in South America, so that's not going to work out. But anyway, so he comes to this uh, hut, and he goes in, this machete, and deals with it. He comes out like 10 minutes later, um, and he says, okay, I've taken care of it, but don't go back in there for another couple of hours. They're like, well, I thought thought you were taking care of it. Did it have babies? Like, what's, why can't I go back in this room? Um, He says, well, it still has some strength. It still could actually do some damage to you, Um, which I didn't know this. So, you know, some information for you if you ever come across a giant boa constrictor, which I don't know why you would, but um, apparently it still has the strength. It still has the ability to, like, harm you. So it could actually kill you after it's been killed. Um, so I think this is a really good way 
to think about Satan, to think about evil, right? So Jesus has defeated Satan and evil. We do not have to fear it. Um, But at the same time, though it's a defeated enemy, it can still do some damage, right? Um, So in 1 Peter 5.8, this is a very common verse that I think is helpful. It says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Notice the command here is not be afraid, stay up awake at night thinking about this. It's be alert, be conscious of this fact. You're walking in an area that has snakes in it. I am going to walk through a place differently if I know there are snakes around if, versus if there's not. Right? I'm going to be a little more alert. I'm not going to walk through tall grass. There's lots of things I'm going to do. Maybe not walk there at all, probably. Um, so again, right? we see in this petition, be alert, be on guard, and come to the Father for help. He is the one who will help you in this way. So as we conclude this morning, uh, I want to ask a final question. What does the Lord's Prayer teach us, and why should we pray it? So I think a couple of things um, can be our response. First, the Lord's Prayer gives us the proper framework for God and the world. So if I am just making this up as I go in my own spiritual journey, and I have a whole bunch of ideas about who God is and what the world is like, if that is dominated by my Facebook feed or by Twitter or by whatever I read in the news, it's going to be different than if my views about the world are informed by the prayer. It's going to make me not want to get out of bed in the morning, right? Um, But the Lord's Prayer helps to reframe. It helps us to refocus. Um, The second thing is that through prayer, we become transformed. It's not just that we're able to reframe it, but we're able to be transformed. And it's also a petition to God to transform the world. Prayer ultimately is about this kind of transformation. And third, even as neuroscience tells us, it is through prayer that we become closer to God. Prayer is really good for you. So I want to leave you with a couple of practical ways to use the Lord's Prayer this week. Um, Prayer is not just being open and honest. Prayer is really not my strong suit. Um, And so it's very helpful for me to have practical and tangible applications and so I, um, there is a sheet around you, somewhere around you. If you don't have one, I can definitely give you copies. Um, but essentially, I want to challenge you to do two things. Um, so I thought Mike's challenge last week was really good about setting an alarm. And so I'm just going to kind of tack on to that for the first challenge, which is maybe set your alarm and say the Lord's Prayer. Then you don't even have to think about it. If prayer is not your strong suit, I know I get hung up on like, well, okay, what do I say? Just pray the Lord's Prayer, right? It's, it's the prayer Jesus taught us to pray, right? If, if anybody's going to tell us how to pray, that's going to be Jesus. I'm going to follow that guy. Um, so second thing that I would challenge, and this is on the guided meditation section. Um, so there are five petitions in this thing, which could be five weekdays. Um, and so for each weekday, um, my challenge would be to take one of the petitions And I have something for you to either reflect on and then a question to think about. Um, So 
meditation is a little bit different than prayer. Meditation, you're trying to be still before God. And if you're like me, one, it's really hard to find a time where there is stillness, okay? Um, and also, it's, it's difficult to quiet my mind. This does not have to be a long thing. I would say five minutes. If you can just set aside five minutes and reflect on the characteristics of a good father and ask that question and maybe go throughout the week, that might be a really um, advantageous thing for you to do. Um, and if you feel like you can add, I would add like a minute, right? Start with five, add a minute. Um, meditation is inherently practical, and the only way you get better is through practice, really. Um, so I want to leave you with a final quote. Oop, wrong page. Um, this is uh, by a guy named Kurt Vonnegut. Interestingly enough, he is um, an agnostic. He's not a believer. He was a humanist philosopher, um, and he had this to say about the Lord's Prayer. He said, while Einstein's theory of relativity may one day put the earth on the intergalactic map, it will always run a distant second to the Lord's Prayer, whose harnessing of energies in their proper life-giving direction surpasses even the discovery of fire. So those are some pretty complimentary words from a guy who's not even a Christian. Um, so what I'm going to do, which I think is kind of appropriate, is I'm going to close us in the Lord's Prayer. You're welcome to join me. You don't have to. The words are there on the sheet if you would like to. So if you would bow your heads with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.